A certain man, Lazarus, was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness isn't fatal. It's for the glory of God so that God's son can be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha, her sister and Lazarus. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was. After two days, he said to his disciples, let's return to Judea again. The disciples replied, Rabbi, the Jewish opposition wants to stone you, but do you want to go back? Jesus answered, aren't there 12 hours in the day? Whoever walks in the day doesn't stumble because they see the light of the world. But whoever walks in the night does stumble because the light isn't in them. He continued, our friend Lazarus is sleeping, but I am going in order to wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will get well. They thought Jesus meant that Lazarus was in a deep sleep, but Jesus had spoken about Lazarus' death. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. For your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you can believe. Let's go to him. Then Thomas, the one called Didymus, said to the other disciples, let us go too so that we may die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was a little less than two miles from Jerusalem. Many Jews had come to comfort Martha and Mary after their brother's death. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him while Mary remained in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Martha replied, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She replied, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, God's son, the one who is coming into the world. After she said this, she went and spoke privately to her sister Mary. The teacher is here and he's calling for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to Jesus. He hadn't entered the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were comforting Mary in the house saw her get up quickly and leave, they followed her. They assumed she was going to mourn at the tomb. When Mary arrived where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying also, he was deeply disturbed and troubled. He asked, where have you laid him? They replied, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to cry. The Jews said, 
See how much he loved him? But some of them said, He healed the eyes of the man born blind. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was deeply disturbed again when he came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone covered the entrance. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, the smell will be awful. Who's been dead four days? Jesus replied, Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see God's glory? So they removed the stone. Jesus looked up and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. I know you always hear me. I say this for the benefit of the crowd standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. Having said this, Jesus shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his feet bound and his hands tied and his face covered with a cloth. Jesus said to them, untie him and let him go. Great. That was a really long reading. Thank you for that. Thanks be to God. Amen. Have you ever had that feeling that you've bottomed out, that you're just, you're finished, you're done. Maybe if you're a parent, uh, you you feel that like, and it's really disturbing when you feel that on like a Tuesday, or maybe you feel that at your work, or maybe um, that at various times of the semester, you feel that, that you just have nothing left. Things couldn't get worse. Maybe this is related to pain and suffering and and you just don't feel like you can hurt any more than you hurt right now. When I I was a kid growing up in Central Florida, we would go to some of the theme parks. And this is like the stock trick for roller coasters and like things like uh, at Universal Studios, they have this ride called the Tower of Terror, which is basically just an elevator shaft that that drops really fast. And this is a trick. Right when you think it can't get any worse, right when you think you're done with the ride, they drop you a little, a little more. And like, there's a little bit of a free fall. On Tower of Terror, people would hold pennies and, and watch them float because you'd be free falling. Maybe it's that feeling of helplessness and disorientation that our country has been feeling. It's been an exhausting ride that many of us just want to tap out and get off of. It's been a a ride that many people used to this sort of suffering and tumult are no longer surprised at. Or maybe you have felt this on a personal level. Like I know I've felt this recently. Um, I don't say this as a competition for sorrow. Several weeks ago when I found out a friend died suddenly, it was like grief on top of grief. And it revealed to me just how depleted I already was from a cumulative um, amount of like sundry small griefs. I found out the other day though that a mutual friend of mine um, and, and my friend who passed, this mutual friend lost, he and his wife lost their first baby in a miscarriage recently too. So it's, it's this compounding grief and some of these griefs are invisible and unknown. This is really heavy stuff. I think of the spiritual that we sang last week in our worship gathering. The song, it's really familiar. What wondrous love is this? 
there's that one verse that always catches me. It says, when I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down, it all feels like this spiral. I used to be kind of uncomfortable with the latter part of that verse. It says, when I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown because it felt so personal. No one wants a, a disappointed parent, especially like a disappointed parent writ large, writ divine. But maybe that righteous frown isn't a frown of disappointment. Maybe it's a frown of empathy. Maybe it's a, a frown of grieving with us as we sink. Maybe it's a frown of anger at a world that is being ravaged by sin and death. The, the creed that we've been following this summer chimes in here for us with one of the more disputed and enigmatic sections. Sure, Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Few atheist historians even would dispute the historical data of this. In fact, there are probably actually plenty of Jesuses who died similar deaths like this. It wasn't whether a poor brown man died unjustly at the hands of empire, but it was which one. State power has a way of erasing those who get in the way. But the following clause that we're focused on today, Jesus descended to the dead, starts to get into kind of speculative territory. For one, how could we know? How do we know where Jesus went after he died? Secondly, it feels like an unnecessarily too far, too late plunge even deeper. It's a maniacal roller coaster operator sinking us down after we've already thought we hit rock bottom. I know Jesus' disciples thought they hit rock bottom. Thirdly, why would Jesus be there? This place, in Latin, it's ad infernum, to hell, to the dead, to the underworld, to Sheol. That place is no place for the God human. In fact, it is by definition the anti-place for the divine. First Peter 3 talks about how Jesus suffered on account of sins once and for all, the righteous one on behalf of the unrighteous. He did this in order to bring you into the presence of God. Christ was put to death as a human, but made alive by the Spirit. And it was by the Spirit that he went to preach to the spirits in prison. Went to preach to the spirits in prison. I think that's what's happening when Christ descends to the dead. When the bottom falls out, yet again, Jesus expands the floor of God's mercy and presence. Jesus' descent to the dead means that your sin or your despair or your suffering can never outpace God. Jesus preaches to the spirits who are in prison. Psalm 139 puts it, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. Jesus goes down, 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 and even further down to raid hell, 
to open up the prisons that were always locked from the inside. Should it surprise us that this is in continuity with what Jesus said and did while he was alive? Do we remember his first sermon? Good news to the poor, sight to the blind, liberation to prisoners, and deliverance to the captives? Eastern Orthodox iconographers always get this really beautifully and really right. That, that Jesus, who died and descended, stands on these busted prison doors and grabs the old Adam and Eve by the wrist, pulling them out of their coffins. Over and over, we see this. Standing on a busted door, grabbing Adam and Eve by the wrist. Over and over. When Jesus grabs them by the wrist, he grabs you and I by the wrist also. This is a, a powerful doctrine that's happening here, that there is a hell, but it's possible that it could be empty if we would just be rescued. Just come out and follow Jesus into the eternal life of resurrection. The, the long story from John 11, it's like the center point of John's gospel, shares a dramatic instance of grief in joy of death, in new life, amidst friends, in the story of Lazarus. That story is illustrative. It's, it's not complete in showing the shape and power of Jesus' own death and resurrection, but it gives us a glimpse of it ahead of time. First off, Jesus' resurrection and Lazarus's are substantially different. While Lazarus was raised from the dead, Sleep was a euphemism for the state of which no one would wake up from. Lazarus is still going to die again. Lazarus did die again. We might call Lazarus as a resuscitation more than a resurrection. Mary's deep grief is temporary, temporarily uh, quelled, but will ultimately be repeated in a few years. However, Jesus' resurrection by the Spirit has a new character to it a new creation character to it. You might say it was atypical because it never happened before, but we could also say that Jesus' resurrection is prototypical, like a prototype being made, a new way, paving a way for our bodies to be given new and eternal life. Secondly, we might say that the raising of Lazarus is a sign John's gospel is filled with signs. Yesterday afternoon, uh, I got the honor to be part of Shirley and Calvin's socially distanced wedding, and the story was from John 2, and it was the first sign, the wedding feast at Cana, in which Jesus was turning water into wine, and as if that wasn't cool enough, that this was a sign for something even more cool. The kingdom coming, fulfilling expectation and bringing about joy and abundance in the midst of lack. So Lazarus is, is the, the final sign that points to glory. There, there are other signs in John's gospel, healings and feedings and walking on water. But now this seventh sign is a completion. It's a more developed 
Polaroid about what God is really up to in Christ, namely defeating death. Because death is not only sin's consequence, but it is sin's goal to make us less human, even as it promises to make us more. That's the logic of death. That's when we're, many of us are reevaluating these systems of death, and it's maybe we're used to personal sin, but thinking about systemic sin is a, is a little bigger and hairier and hard to get our heads around. We must realize that the, the way this works, the logic by which it works by is it promises to make us more human and in so doing makes us less. That's why racism not just hurts the, the um, targets of racism, but it also hurts the racist. White supremacy hurts uh, people who aren't white, but it especially also hurts white supremacists because it's not true. And anytime you live and build your life around not truth, it's going to fall and it's going to hurt and it's going to hurt you and it's going to hurt others. That's why baptism and Easter go so well together because they both proclaim physically that death can and must be gone through into a new and lasting and real and glorious life in Christ that change is possible, that new life is possible by going through death. So we start to see the ways that Lazarus' story previews Jesus' own. Jesus is troubled at the graveside, much in the same way that he is troubled to his core in the Garden of Gethsemane as he stares down death. Jesus cries out with a loud voice, the same voice he cries out uh, to the Father on the cross. And he cries out and he says, Lazarus, come out. The story of Lazarus is the center point and the central pointer in John's telling of the good news of Jesus. Lastly, we need to pay attention to an important detail in the Lazarus story that gives us insight to the very heart of God's plan for renewal the center of the story, really at the center of the gospel of John, since this tiny sentence, this is like the sword drill sentence. This, for parents, if you're trying to get your kids to memorize scripture and incentivizing them, they're gonna go straight to this sentence. Jesus wept. It's at the middle of all that had happened and was to come. Jesus pauses to have a good cry over the loss, albeit temporary, of a good friend. The text says that Jesus comes, observes, and weeps. Knowing what we know about who Jesus really is, John's gospel says he's the word that was around from the beginning of all creation, made flesh. We might observe Jesus to do kind of the, the conquering king thing, the Vini Vedi Vici thing. I came, I saw, I conquered. But instead with Jesus, we get I came, I observed, I wept. The psalmist connects these two polar experiences of weeping and the joy that would be to come. Psalm 30 says, you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Jesus shows us that the suffering, pain, 
fear and sorrow of the cross, the descent even unto death and even beyond death into the, the land of the dead, the place where the prisoners live, is always the prerequisite and the companion to joy and hope and vindication and the renewal of resurrection. They can't be separated or pried apart. Mourning and sackcloth are the seedbed and womb for dancing and joy. Many of you know one of my favorite artists, Mako Fujimura. He was showing a painting, a new painting at the time, to a friend named Steve Garber in this painting, uh, Karis Kairos, is motivated by the tears of Christ. And you can find Mako writes uh, about this painting and the process behind it and how important just that simple sentence Jesus wept is to his whole life. And his friend Steve Garber commented, I would not be a Christian apart from those tears. Jesus's wasteful tears. It seems that Jesus is always present to his place and his people and is even often driven to tears. I hope that's encouragement for us in this time of much weeping over our world, over things in our front yard, over things in the forefront of our mind. Jesus is always attentive to what is going on around him and is often driven to tears. What if we could learn this art and discipline of being so attentive, so unhurried, so prodigious, so wasteful, so hopeful to be able to cry over our neighbors in a way that lunges us towards glory and peace and new creation. One of my teachers when I was in seminary always said, if it can't be happy, make it beautiful. If it can't be happy, make it beautiful. And the story of Lazarus, which points us to Jesus's resurrection, is somehow able to hold these two things together. Jesus's tears promise that until our tears are finally wiped away, as we enjoy the coming of God to dwell with us in a completely renewed heaven and earth, our tears can also be offerings of hope and beauty. Our tears matter. Our tears are, are actually spiritual practices. So Jesus comes to Lazarus's graveside, weeps and calls, remove the stone, Lazarus come out, and then to the people around, untie him and let him go. These days we're all Lazarus. We're all Lazarus. We're invited to come out of the places of captivity and death. We're freed from the bonds of all the things that enslave us, all the things that lie to us, all the things that keep us in these death-dealing cycles, all these addictions to the very things that are killing us and killing other people and other parts of God's good creation through us. We must be able to begin to imagine this sort of freedom that Jesus has wrought for us, that Jesus calls us into to do for others. We're called to be continually converted, to be slowly and repeatedly able to develop this sort of resurrected imagination 
and goes all the way down, even beyond the bottom, because it comes all the way up and brings us with him. It'll allow us to look at places of deep suffering, to look at the cross-stricken heap of flesh of our Messiah and to see possibility, not an end, to still have hope that the Spirit will bring new life. That we can look at the stumps of our own lives that God might allow green shoots to spring up even when the ax seems to be to have been laid at the root. There is a stubbornness to this sort of hope, a resilience. When new life in Christ comes, we'll look for those track marks, those tear tracks, those scars, those ax marks, and we'll remember those times of suffering. We'll remember and hold that pain as a place not of God forsakenness, but of God's care and companionship and guidance. And we'll know that Jesus was there. He descended to the dead and was raised by the Spirit. And we'll proclaim and live into a more creative and durable and everlasting life given to us by the Spirit as we're in Christ. We'll be a people who with all humanity can say, Jesus grabbed me by the wrist and brought me into new and everlasting life. You all pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mission to speak good news to the poor, freedom to the captives, deliverance to those in bondage, sight to the blind, jubilee. We thank you that this mission was not only active and successful in your time on this earth, but it is ongoing. It continued after your death and it still continues in your resurrected and eternal life. It continues through us, through the church, through these witnesses and prophets that open up this new and everlasting life for us. Uh, even in this time of social distance from each other, that you declare that nothing can separate us from your love, no height or depth or width or breadth or power or principality or angel or demon or anything can separate us from your love. This is an expansive love. This is a wide bandwidth love that we are able to tap into, and we thank you for it. Renew our imaginations. Renew us as we weep for this world that you weep for. Um, help us, even at the same time, rejoice with those who are rejoicing and finding hope. We thank you, Lord, uh, for being with us. And even more so, we thank you that we are joined and united with you. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.